I'm Reverend J. Stuart Glover, and you are listening to Faith Talk. We are back again today with our um, beloved friend, Stephen Beard, who's going to uh, take us on a conversation um, concerning prediabetes. Um, he certainly knows more about it than I, so Stephen, why don't you once again introduce yourself to our listening audience in case they don't know who you are. All right, and thank you, Reverend Glover. Uh, so for anyone who is tuning in for the first time, um, I am Stephen Beard, and I am a type 1 diabetic uh, for over 20, 24 plus years. And uh, I got into the career field that I'm in because um, of me being a diabetic. I am a diabetes prevention coach, um, a nutritionist, a board certified um, health and wellness practitioner, um, and soon to be a functional medicine practitioner as well. Um, so as Reverend Glover had mentioned, we are going to be diving in to the prediabetes topic Today. So when we say pre, you, you mentioned um, diabetic type one, and and then we we're mentioned, talking about pre-diabetes. Is that the same thing? No, it's not. So um, pre-diabetes is more or less it's a condition um, where a person's blood sugar levels are higher than normal range, uh, but not high enough to be diagnosed as a type two diabetic. So type 2 diabetes is completely different than what I have, which is type 1. Mm -hmm. All right, so so um, let's just kind of define pre-diabetes and what they really mean by that. I mean, I guess you said the blood sugar levels are elevated. What, what do those numbers look like? What are the numbers supposed to be um, for? Yeah, so for, um, so I, I hate to say for a normal person, so mm -hmm. I'll just say for someone who is not a pre-diabetic, uh, your A1C level would be less than a 5.7. So it'd be like around a 5.6 or lower. Um, if you're pre-diabetic, then your A1C level would be anywhere from a 5.7 to a 6.4. Mm -hmm. So again, again, the importance of knowing those numbers is really um, important, but um, the only way you get to know those numbers is by having your blood checked by, by, by your doctor and paying attention to, to um, what those numbers are and being familiar with what's going on in your own body. <clears throat> so, um, Stephen, let me ask you this. Um, what happens if, again, you know, the same question, what happens if the prediabetes um, is left undiagnosed uh, and or or let's start with this. Are there any symptoms? What what's are there any symptoms of being pre-diabetic? So great question. Um, and this is what a lot of people struggle with. Um, people typically do not experience symptoms with pre-diabetes, um, but everyone can be completely different. Um, so there can be some people who do. Um, experience symptoms with prediabetes, and those symptoms are usually type 2 diabetes symptoms. Um, so if they are occurring, I mean, experiencing those types of symptoms could mean a couple things, that they've been a prediabetic for a while, and their body is transitioning into um, full-blown type 2 diabetes, um, or 
um, you know, they can just be pre-diabetic. Um, and those symptoms could be anything from urinating frequently uh, to blurred, uh, blurred vision, um, feeling uh, thirsty, um, let's see, feeling very hungry, even though um, you have already eaten, um, extreme fatigue, and let's see, tingling or numbness in the hands and feet, uh, which is kind of referred to as a neuropathy um, if you are a diabetic. Um, and then a very easy one um, to really pay attention to is any cuts and bruises that are slow to heal. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So um, now my wife is pre-diabetic and she has one of those home kits that you, you know, prick your finger and it measures the, your blood, the, the sugar levels, I guess, in your blood. Correct. Well, um, and she does it in the morning before she eats anything. And um, I think that just for someone who is using that kind of equipment, there's a, I think there's a difference between doing it before a meal and after a meal. The, re, the results yes, being there, different. Yes, there is. Um, so, and that's, that's actually a great question and something that you actually brought up. So, uh, so if you're testing your blood sugar in the morning before you eat, um, you're pretty much fasting. Um, because um, hopefully you have slept and there's about an eight-hour um, time frame between the last time you had eaten um, up until when you're testing your blood sugar. So when you do that, um, you obviously want to make sure that your blood sugar is below 100 um, because that is going to be normal. Um, if it is above 100, um, up to like 125, uh, then you're definitely in the pre-diabetes stage. Um, if you are testing your blood sugar after you eat, it's referred to as postprandial, um, and you want to make sure you're doing that two hours after you eat, um, because that is pretty much the lag time um, for a non-diabetic to be able to um, lower their blood glucose. Um, after their um, insulin and glucose spikes um, after eating a meal. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> thank you for that. And we talked when we were offline, we talked a little bit about the issue of being overweight and how that can um, not help your pre-diabetic condition. Yes. So... Um, being overweight and obesity is one of the main causes of a lot of the metabolic health concerns. Um, and then prediabetes and type 2 diabetes being one of them. Um, anytime that the body is carrying an excessive amount of weight, um, whether you're 10 pounds overweight or more, it's going to put a lot more stress um, internally um, on your body and on your body's organs. Um, and typically with that excessive weight, um, it's in the form of body fat, um, which more than likely is visceral fat, which is lining uh, your internal organs um, in your abdominal area. And then that is one of the precursors for insulin resistance. 
You know, you mentioned you use the term visceral fat. When a person exercises and you know changes their diet, is does is the visceral fat coming off as fast as the uh, other fats in your body? Um, unless you are actually getting a specific test. Um, that actually will measure the amount of visceral fat that you have. We are more or less just uh, looking at our total weight loss mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that the numbers are dropping as a whole when we step on a scale. Um, there are some expensive machines like a DexaFit, uh, which are in certain medical offices, um, in hospitals. Um, and I believe certain health insurances may cover that, that you can actually um, get complete body composition measurements, uh, which will actually measure your visceral fat versus your subcutaneous fat. Um, But as long as we are improving our food quality, we are making sure that we're portion controlling and not over consuming from a calorie perspective. We are being active and we're exercising and we're managing our stress and we're um, protecting our sleep quality uh, because those are all of the whole person pieces of the puzzle that we have to focus on, then I can pretty much say very confidently that you will be um, decreasing your visceral fat. So this condition of pre-diabetes has the potential to be reversible. Is that correct? That is correct, and that is something that I did uh, want to touch on real quick. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that you brought that up because I hear so many people, you know, in conversations, you know, talk about, oh, I cured myself from diabetes or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer a diabetic. And the diabetes world has its own vocabulary, just like the cancer world has its own vocabulary. So you don't cure yourself from cancer, you are in remission. Mm -hmm. So as diabetics, if you are pre-diabetic, yes, you can reverse your condition um, with all of the lifestyle changes that I had just mentioned um, and making sure that you adhere to them. Um, It doesn't mean that you cured yourself because if you end up going back to the same lifestyle that you were living previously, then you are going to end up becoming a pre-diabetic again. And it's the same thing with type 2 diabetes. So you can reverse your condition, um, but that does not mean that you actually cured your diabetes because you are not cured. You are just in more or less a state of remission if that's the word that you want to use. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of, you know, people who are in groups like Alcoholics Anonymous. I had somebody ask me the other day, you know, um, this guy hasn't had a drink in 30 years, and he says, hi, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> so he, he, yep. he understands that he has not cured himself. He has a condition that he has a predisposition towards, towards um, allowing to control his life. And, and so he introduces himself as an alcoholic. And somebody asked me, well, why does that have to be? So, so, so let's, we, when we mentioned the lifestyle, going back to the lifestyles, um, of course, food 
plays a part in that, right? Um, some of the foods that we should avoid are, um, perhaps you can give us a few. Of course. Um, so if anyone is listening and has listened to our previous podcast, um, you can probably name some of the foods with me. You know, portion controlling your red meat. Um, I am going to say um, literally let go of the red meat altogether. But, I mean, if there's carnivores who are listening um, and you can't live without your red meat, um, minimize it as much as possible and literally make sure that you're portion controlling. Um, portion controlling is a serving size, which is four ounces. Uh, making sure that you are letting go of all sugary beverages, um, sodas, uh, juices as well, um, because those are loaded uh, with added sugars. Um, your moderately to heavily processed types of carbohydrates and foods that are part of the standard American diet, um, you know, they're calorie dense and not nutrient dense. Um, so those are all the types of foods that we want to be able to let go of. Um, mm -hmm. and we want to be able to start adding more plant-based types of foods. So those are like your grains, your beans, your legumes, um, low glycemic types of fruits, which are typically all types of berries. So raspberries, blueberries, blackberries, strawberries, um, pears, apples, um, just to name a few. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's pretty much from a food perspective. Right. And then there's, of course, there's the fried foods that people are frying foods in, um, you know, all sorts of things, um, unhealthy lard, um, you know. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You're, <laughs> I mean, I always tell people if you are used to fried foods, invest in a, um, air fryer. Mm-hmm. Um, because an air fryer is going to give you that same, and I say it's, it's, it's psychological. So it's going to give you that same feeling um, when your taste buds, because an air fryer will still fry your food, but it's going to be a lot more healthier because you're not utilizing the artery clogging types of oils and greases, you know, to physically fry the food in. Right, right, right. So, you know, you mentioned psychological. <clears throat> My wife and I were just um, a couple of days ago, we were looking on YouTube and researching some some vegan restaurants to explore in, in New York City. And um, <clears throat> one thing that I found um, a lot of them do is offer foods that um, look like meat, <laughs> taste like meat. And I'm, I'm saying, well, what's the psychological benefit of that? I mean, if you're trying to minimize or stay away from red meat, why would you construct something that looks like it, smells like it, and tastes like it? I mean, does that really help you get away from it, or just is that just a taste thing? So we decided that we would rather just go to find a, a restaurant that's not trying to imitate meat foods. <laughs> and that's great. Um, I'm a huge advocate um, around the whole vegan community and what is actually going on with the, uh, I guess, uh, fake meats right. out there. Because, yes, I always suggest to eat the real thing mm -hmm. versus eating the heavily processed types of fake meats that are currently on the market. 
um, just because they're loaded with chemicals and additives, um, you know, and some of them can cause a lot more harm internally, um, you know, than what we what we would expect or what we think um, that could actually be happening. And some people think, oh, just because it's um, a non-meat substitute, then it's healthier than actually eating the real thing. And in and, and actuality, it's not. Right. They take that non-meat substance and they deep fry it in canola oil or vegetable oil and or some other type of unhealthy <clears throat> stuff. And, and really, you know, I, it's psychologically, why are you chasing after the meat, as they say? Yep. 100%. And that's like somebody that's drinking healthy. somebody drinking non-alcoholic beer or non-alcoholic wine. You know, if you're if you were been determined to be an alcoholic, that's probably not what you should be doing. 100%. I didn't even know there was non-alcoholic wine on the market. Yeah, there is. There All right. Is. <clears throat> so, um Again, so leaving these conditions unchecked, I mean, if you don't go to the doctor, you don't know that you have it, you go to the doctor, you find out that you do have it, um, and, and you don't do anything to try to reverse or, or put it into remission, what are some of the risks that lie ahead of us left if we don't deal with it, make some behavioral changes? So, um, I mean, the ultimate risk is uh, type 2 diabetes. Mm. Um, and I believe we will be discussing type 2 diabetes in one of our upcoming uh, podcasts. Um, but that is also going to lead to things like heart disease, mm -hmm. um, which also will lead to strokes, um, which could also lead to other um, organ failures like kidneys, um, as well as the liver. Um, so you definitely or we definitely want to make sure that we are, um, you know, grabbing a hold of our, our health and wellness and really getting these tests done. Um, I would suggest every six months. Mm -hmm. um, I do know that there's some insurance companies out there that only will cover, you know, these types of tests once a year. But so I would suggest trying to figure out what your um, insurance offers. And if you're able to get, uh, you know, there's three specific tests um, that you can actually take uh, for uh, pre-diabetes diagnosis. And I would make sure that you're either getting them um, biannually or annually. Mm -hmm. Well, what about those, like I mentioned earlier, that my wife has one of those home kits that, that measures the blood, the sugar in the blood levels. I mean, just as a, not as a substitute for going to the doctor, but just to begin to monitor your own sugar levels, as they call it. No. So, I mean, that's an option as well. Um, but again, if you haven't um, actually had uh, the metabolic panel of blood work done um, and the true diagnosis, um, then that is what I would suggest to do. Mm -hmm. um, you can go to a drugstore um, and buy over-the-counter as a glucose monitoring system, which I believe that's what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so, or you can even go to Walmart because they have those over-the-counter. So you can buy the system, the glucose monitoring system, you know, some test strips, um, and then the, the pricker, um, and, and test your blood glucose yourself. Um, to monitor that, yes. Um, so that would kind of like be a pre, 
a prevention um, kind of step um, that you could actually be proactive with and, and take care of that and do that yourself. And then if you notice that your blood sugar levels are running more on the higher side, then definitely get yourself in um, to get um, some blood work done. Yeah, higher than 100. Um, you know, I've heard of people telling me the they numbers are like 300. Yes, and that is, that's the sad part um, because um, there's one, one in every three American adults and that's 18 or older are currently walking around this country um, pre-diabetic and then more than 80% of those that's more than 98 million people and more than 80% of them are not even aware that they are pre-diabetic and this is the reason why our type 2 diabetes numbers are scaled so significantly is because of the unawareness of the 80% of the 98 million people who are pre-diabetic are walking around and not even aware of it because they have not been tested. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of type 2 diabetics who aren't even aware that they're even a diabetic because they may be asymptomatic to a lot of the symptoms that type 2 diabetes typically would be experiencing. Um, so a lot of them will not even find out that they're even a type 2 diabetic until they have to go to the doctor for another purpose and they get blood work done and then they discover when the blood work comes back that, you know, they're a diabetic as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you were speaking, I, I somehow the thought about children came into my mind and how I um, um, encountered a, a young girl, she's six years old, who when offered macaroni and cheese, homemade macaroni and cheese, she said, no, I don't like that kind. <laughs> and when she was offered one that was pre-packaged, you know, like, uh, I don't want to mention any brands, but something that you add water and put it in the microwave, she said, that's the one I want. <laughs> or, or, or if you, uh, you know, offer her chicken nuggets that you made, she know, I like my chicken nuggets from McDonald's. So what I'm getting at, is that kids have, some kids have become so conditioned to fast food and processed food that they don't even want what is homemade, as we call it. 100%. And that is where we as parents and adults in today's day and age, we have to really make sure that we are teaching our kids or even grandkids at a young age the, the importance of food quality because our behaviors as you as you know our behaviors and habits as we age are instilled in us as we were kids so it's going to be much much harder for those kids as they become teenagers and then young adults and then grown adults to try to change their behaviors and their habits um, versus trying to work on that and, and, and improve them now while they're still young. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I think this is a good place to rest. Do you have any final thoughts, Stephen? Um, final thoughts is, you know, if you are diagnosed as a pre-diabetic, I just really want to say action is the best medicine. 
So I, I just want to say that again, action is the best medicine. Um, you know, you have the power to change things. So what that means is, number one, getting the test done. So it's not the blind leading the blind. And then number two, the awareness is already there. So now it's just aligning things and getting a system and protocol in place that is going to help you through lifestyle changes to be able to reverse your pre-diabetes diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And Stephen, you, you said that you were a diabetic lifestyle. Uh, why don't you retell? A diabetes lifestyle prevention coach. Okay, so if somebody wanted to reach out to you for information or for, for um, your counseling, how would they do that? You could reach out to me by email. Um, so that would be Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at mastermetabolichealth.com, and that's all one word. Um, or you can even shoot me a text message at uh, 305-467-8781. Stephen, thank you for coming in again. It's always a pleasure to have you add value to, these, to this Faith Talk platform which is a faith-based platform, but we, we look at it like this. God loves you enough that he wants you to take care of your body as well. We have some skin in the game. <laughs> so, 100%. <laughs> so, again, you've been listening to Faith Talk. I'm Reverend J. Stuart Glover. Please visit www.ReverendJStuartGlover.com where you can hear this episode, the prior episodes, and you can see Stephen's uh, information up there. And, and join our um, global listening audience. Thank you again for listening in. God bless you. We'll see you next time.